0: I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School.
1: When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School we hope you had a great winter break for those of you who are just joining us this is an Asian American pop culture history podcast if this is your first time listening to us we encourage you to go back to the other seasons season 1 was about Asian American comedy films now repeat after me in sickness and in health till death do us part till sickness and death season 2 was about Asian Americans in love
0: if he feels like that what
1: can I expect from you everything because I love you Our last season was about Asian American music movies. And this season,
0: we are focusing on a certain character type and attitude by discussing the troublemakers of Asian American cinema, both in front of the camera and behind the camera.
1: Which we think is interesting to explore because stereotypically, we are not troublemakers.
0: Right. So I think on the most obvious level, the idea of a troublemaker on screen is combating the model minority myth of Asian Americans not speaking up, playing by the rules, not causing trouble in the status quo. And then there's the other end of this, which is there are Different ways of considering success as filmmakers or as artists. So many Asian American filmmakers, and we see this all the time in the film festival circuit, they're all trying to make feature length films that can show that Hollywood can just plug them into the system. They make professional looking documentaries, or they are cinematographers of a certain kind of perfection, (laughs) or they're directors that can make franchise movies. And sure, that's wonderful too, but we will also be talking about filmmakers that are not in any way assimilatable into the capitalist film industry. So as a result, I think naturally we're going to be talking about not just feature-length filmmakers, but also people working in short films, experimental films, and then films that cross over into the art world, like today. Like today. Now, a lot of this was inspired by Eva Ishii's legendary article back in 2000 when she Uh, sort of made this analysis of filmmakers who she called bad Asians. And uh, she had fun with the idea of what the bad means.
1: Who are the bad Asians?
0: Primarily, they were film and video makers who were working in the queer experimental realm, Um, people who were breaking down the norms of not just taste and what is proper filmmaking, but also of gender and sexuality. And all of which break down what we traditionally think about as sort of healthy Asian-American production of culture and she embraces that and we should too.
1: Wasn't her line something like you can think of bad Asians as also being badass Asians?
0: That is correct. Yeah so for our purposes badass as in like we see these works and we want to tell everybody about them because there's something to be proud of.
1: We are debating whether to call it troublemakers or bad Asians.
0: Bad Asians is cool because it's going straight to the point of you are doing something wrong. Whereas Troublemakers, you know, he could just be causing some casual trouble. No, no one gets hurt.
1: There's a spectrum of trouble. Yeah, yeah. We think this will be a really fun season. I don't know. When I think of the word Troublemakers, it sounds fun.
0: Well, that's because you are a Troublemaker.
1: I'm not really a Troublemaker. Our
0: listeners don't know about your corpus of works in the troublemaking realm.
1: What? A, my corpus? <laughs> Did the first one star you?
0: Maybe I'm just so familiar with them because I'm a frequent victim of your of your ideas.
1: I don't know what you're talking about.
0: I would even like to believe that this podcast is yet another example of that.
1: I feel like calling me a troublemaker is doing a disservice to the really cool troublemakers that we're about to feature in this season.
0: I think that's fair, at least <laughs> as a way to pump up the rest of the season.
1: Are you a troublemaker?
0: I feel like most of my troublemaking, you were a collaborator at some point. Things that we do <laughs> on red carpets.
1: Oh, that kind of troublemaking. That's like very low level troublemaking. I feel like my troublemaking is like honors students in the back of the classroom troublemaking.
0: <laughs> there's certain troublemaking that has a wittiness and a critical edge to it that will get you an A in the class. And then there's troublemaking that gives you an F in the class. We've probably done the A stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're like model minority troublemaking. Which is not what we're looking at. <laughs> Looking at our list of upcoming episodes, I think there's a little of both.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: People who can get grants for the troublemaking and some who are just going to be laughed out of the room. So we thought it might be fun to start with one of the OGs of troublemaking, Yoko Ono.
1: I think when a lot of people think about Yoko Ono, they probably think about her relationship with John Lennon and possibly having something to do with breaking up the Beatles, which is not what we're talking about here.
0: Not so interested. Partly because it reduces her to her famous husband, but it also makes us forget that she was kind of a famous artist or a really important one.
1: Which I don't think I knew for a long time. I, like a lot of people, did know her more by her reputation than by her art.
0: Yeah, and even if we've thought about her art, it would be the performance art she did with John Lennon, like the famous one about them being in bed, or the music they did together. But before she met John Lennon, she was already a fixture of the New York City art scene, especially with the Fluxus movement. A collective of artists, mostly in New York City, but kind of all over the world, that were inspired by things like Dada. Um, and like Dadaism, they had a spirit of anti-establishment, sort of DIY-ness to it. You don't have to be of a certain kind of class to make provocative arts. And also inspired by like John Cage, folks like that. This is in the 1960s. John
1: Cage is the one who composed a musical piece of nothing, right?
0: Or of no sounds of music. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess they would say nothing is not correct.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he s- sits by a piano for four minutes and 33 seconds. That's right.
1: I love stuff like that. It's so crazy. Of course you do. I was like so fascinated by people who kind of enforce their own crazy limits in their art. They just commit 100%. Like If you're going (laughs) to rewrite the
0: rules, they should be completely rewritten.
1: And one of her most known works is this performance art piece called Cut. Cut piece. Which basically has her on stage and she invites audience members to cut a piece of her clothes off. And keep it.
0: Yeah, so she did this performance, I think, like five times in Japan, New York, and London, to quite different responses. Luckily for us, one of the New York performances was filmed by none other than the legendary documentary filmmakers, the Maisels Brothers. There's eight minutes of it that you can find online on Vimeo. And boy, it's um, to see it happen is tactile and watching her face as they do it.
1: Sort of makes you a little bit nervous. It's like, how much do you trust other people, I guess? Right. In the very beginning, like, a lot of people were very respectful, so then you kind of feel good about humanity. But then you're like, should I feel that good about humanity? I don't know about that.
0: People don't talk about the racial elements of this piece. Um, they usually just talk about it in terms of uh, what does it mean for a woman to allow herself to be disrobed. But specifically, it's an Asian woman being disrobed by white people.
1: And this was in 1964.
0: Yeah, so 1964, this is also before the more recent wave of Asian immigration. So it's not like Asian folks were a big part of the consuming class of art in the United States or the producing class. She just happened to be this transnational person who kind of grew up in between the U.S. and Japan and wound up in the United States and New York City after the war. So she was still kind of this like exotic figure. And I think that had to be a part of how people were... Perceiving her putting herself on display and how they could approach her, and what does her female sexuality mean when they are approaching her?
1: Because I think mm. she's done it a few times more recently.
0: Yeah, so she did it in 2003 or something. Uh, but but I think at that point you are watching the disrobing of Yoko Ono, the celebrity.
1: Mm, yeah. Whereas
0: at that time it's Yoko Ono, a Japanese artist. <laughs>
1: It reminds me of um, it was one of those videos that went viral in 2017, where a Muslim man who was blindfolded offered free hugs, and it was right after a terrorist attack.
0: Someone to give you a hug as well, yeah. there you go. Thank you very much, little man. Thank you every day of the week. Thank you. Sorry, Thank
1: you. Much no appreciate. Problem. That means a lot. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Much appreciate. Thank you. That was kind of one of those feel good videos you need after this horrible tragedy. But you, you're still a little bit nervous, right? He's blindfolded. He's vulnerable.
0: Yeah, because the danger of doing it out in open is that anybody can come up. Because in the art world, someone's policing the boundary. Yeah. There are security guards there. But I think what makes the Yoko Ono thing so fascinating is a critique of the art world. Do you feel the danger even within the art space? She did it in some kind of stately New York upper-class venue, even within that space, that potential for violence against an Asian woman is so tactile. And you can see how quickly people can go from being well-dressed patrons of the arts to people holding sharp objects who might need to be separated from her.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So what I was reading was that in Japan, the audience was very respectful of this being some kind of art performance. So they came up and very kind of quietly cut a piece off whereas when you're watching the version that's on film in new york city it turns kind of fratty the way that they're like egging people on as they go up to her
1: it's really just that one guy that comes in is kind of an asshole
0: very delicate might take some time
1: he starts by kind of cutting off the fabric that is right on top of her bra to reveal her bra, right? And that's when you can kind of hear people giggling in the background. It's not like they completely support it, but it's this weird, uncomfortable balance of like, they're like, oh, does he really have to do that? But also they're giggling. And then there's sort of this idea of like, is she asking for it? Don't you think? Because you get the feeling like,
0: I'm allowed to do this. You're letting me do this. I have permission, right?
1: That's what this project is. Like, what does she expect? And that's when I think especially watching it now during like the Me Too era. Oh my gosh. But the super asshole thing he does. Okay, so he like cuts the shirt off to reveal her bra. And then right before he leaves, he cuts the tops of both of her bra straps. So it falls and then... She has to
0: hold it up herself.
1: I don't know. I just feel like there's something about like, okay, I'm going to expose your bra. No, I'm going to take it all. Just like those two final snaps. And then it's this thing where it's like you see how it's so easy to take advantage of power, right? Like it's sort of like this is a project and supposedly it's about like giving and taking and it's supposed to be some communal experience.
0: And it's and so like everyone else just goes up and takes a snip and it's like they're taking a little souvenir off. Whereas he is just taking his sweet time and he's like... Pruning her clothes, he feels very comfortable up there with the scissors and her body.
1: It's very sadistic. Yeah. And it's just because he can.
0: Yoko Ono is like still the entire time, but at one point it looks like she's about to give him a glare of like, <laughs> what do you think you're doing? So you feel like you're at that boundary between this being a provocative art piece and something that's a little bit more sinister.
1: And then three years later, she did another project called Four.
0: Which was six minutes of people's butts, (laughs) naked (laughs) butts, walking and it creates a funny mushy effect. It's like watching marshmallows bouncing on each other. Um, So that's just that for six minutes. And she later expanded that into an 80-minute film called Bottoms, in which it's just quadrants of butts for 80 minutes. So anyways, she talked about how people's butts are their most vulnerable parts, and she wanted to put that front and center. And by doing this, she kind of makes us feel that it's not so vulnerable because it just becomes mundane that we're just looking at butts for a long time i mean the beginning it does seem very like should i be watching this how am i supposed to watch it is it weird that i'm looking at it so closely is it weird that this is all i'm looking at and by the end it's just butts when um, she expanded this to the 80-minute version, she very publicly did a casting call for butts. <laughs> <laughs> she like put out a call in a newspaper. So it became sort of this public event that developed notoriety beyond just what was on screen. People talked about it even without having seen it because it was kind of prankish. Yeah. Um, hence the troublemaking. <laughs> um, but the actual visual experience of it is kind of... I know, it's cute. There's this is kind of utopian vision of harmony through butts.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure how long we can talk so seriously about butts for. <laughs> yeah. I think before I watched it, I was like, is this just butts? And you were like, yeah.
0: So the, the 80 minute version is more than just butts. I mean, on screen is just butts, but there is a soundtrack to it. Oh. And they're like talking about this project of doing butts on screen. So it's a little bit more self reflexive about what they're doing. Mm. But like a lot of Andy Warhol's work from around this time, like his legendary films of people sleeping, it seems better on paper than to actually watch. <laughs> but I, I'd argue Yoko Ono's are, are more fun to watch than Warhol's because of the fleshy softness and <laughs> <laughs> symmetry. <laughs> Yoko Ono occupies this weird position in Asian American cinema where she's like, uh, she seems so unique, partly because she's famous for the John Lennon stuff. Um, she was kind of alone in her time, and it was before something called Asian-American cinema existed. And the extent to which Yoko Ono would call herself a Asian-American, I think, is also debatable. So I, I think she sometimes doesn't get recognition or credits within Asian-American circles for her pioneering film work. But I, I definitely see what she does as an antecedent to kind of the later video work of a lot of Asian-American women artists. For instance... Someone like Patty Chang. Since a lot of the early scholarship on Asian American cinema, they were looking for who were the most provocative people to write about. That was Patty Chang. We watched a compilation of Patty Chang's shorts, and it's mostly of her early work.
1: A lot of them you can see on her website. This is the 90s and early
0: 2000s. She was making these videos like shortly after she graduated. So she's in her 20s at this time, and she's Korean American.
1: And the one <laughs> in particular that's the most shocking is.
0: I'm actually not sure what you're going to say because there there are several in here in this collection. The
1: one called In Love. Oh, boy. That one is actually inspired by Marina Abramovic. She has a piece where it's just her by herself and she's eating an onion. And Patty Chang basically makes a tribute to it. It's
0: called for Abramovich Love Cocktail.
1: So basically, she thought it was kind of lonely to eat an entire onion by herself. So she decided to do it with one of her friends. But what she says is that if you put an onion in your mouth and then eat it with your friend, like you're eating one side and your friend's eating the other side. So your faces are really close and the onion gets smaller and smaller and smaller as you eat it. And then as you're eating it, there's like tears running down your face face she says something like the natural thing to do when you're finished eating the onion and your faces are so close is to like start making out (laughs) (laughs) i read that i was like is it especially because in the video called in love she takes this concept further and she thinks who are the people that i would least want to do this with (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she decides, my parents. Um, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, you know, it's so horrifying to eat an onion and be crying and in miserable pain. Like, you know, kissing your father and your mother is really not an easy deal at that point. I mean, it becomes like a part of the process, you know, it just becomes from bad to worse and worse. So she somehow convinces her parents who I think have had an understandably confusing relationship with her
0: art. <laughs> yeah, the video just begins. It's like two channels on the left and the right. On one side, it's her making out with her dad. <laughs> on the other side, it's her making out with her mom. Seemingly making out. Because their movements are also really strange, like jittery in a weird way. Um, because as it turns out, they're actually making out in backwards motion. And then there's tears down their face. And then as it goes in backwards motion, <laughs> the, the thing that's between their mouths is revealed It takes shape as an onion. So, I mean, as with Yoko Ono's work and a lot of other kind of performance art, it's testing our ability to watch something. <laughs> and testing like our own bodily response to it, because we also feel something between like grossness and eroticism. And then kind of imagining how she convinced her parents to do this.
1: Yeah, so now that we've started with this, what else was more shocking to you
0: than that? I'm going to go straight to the one called eels.
1: Okay. Where I'm laying on the ground and there's the camera above me and um, live eels get put into my shirt.
0: But it's shot so that it looks like she's sitting up.
1: (laughs) So that when you first see her, she has this white shirt on and it's a little bit wet and we don't know why. And we can't tell if she's hurting or having an orgasm or
0: or just being tickled
1: yeah she could just be tickled but then suddenly like there's movement underneath her blouse that seems somewhat alien
0: and it must be uncomfortable not just for her but for the (laughs) eels and
1: (sighs) well here's the thing right that in love one with the onions and her parents is only four minutes it's like four very uncomfortable minutes but the eel one is 16 minutes (laughs) It's 16, it 16 minutes. minutes? It's like, this is so oh. loud. The controversy of that one is that she was harming the eels. So it's a little bit terrible that we're laughing at this.
0: Yes. yeah, probably.
1: <laughs> so I think that yeah, that sort of made people uncomfortable, or, you know, that they in- interpreted it in this way that was like uh, cruel to animals. I mean, which it is. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was quite a cruel piece.
0: Are there any that you especially want to mention?
1: So the one that I want to mention that's not on the DVD, so I haven't seen it and I don't know if it's actually available, but you can read about it on our website. I think it's our very first one and it's called Gong Li with the Wind. (laughs) Did you read about this? No. (laughs) She basically... I'm just going to read it to you.
0: Okay. This is from
1: 1996. And this is something she performed at a museum or something called Gong Li with the Wind. And she wears a hoop skirt. (laughs) And she basically gorges on beans and then poops them out. (laughs) (laughs) Or defecates, as as the art reviewers said, because that's a more proper term. (laughs) In which a hoop skirt clad chain gorges on beans and defecates. (laughs) Actually, that's sort of the fun of this. Like, when you read reviews and how these high art critics describe <laughs> her
0: work. Yeah, which is kind of that, which must have been how people struggle to talk about Yoko Ono's bottoms.
1: Yeah. Some of her work contains scatological elements. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know where we go from there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But yeah, these are things that are kind of in bad taste, and uh, but which she finds as the best vehicle for expressing her sense of her body. I mean, a lot
1: of her work, she's commenting on perceptions of Asian women. Right. So, you know, Lee with the Wind. If you look at her other works, you know, there's one that's called the fan dance that really has nothing to do with what you think of as a fan dance. Um, there's one called um, Contortion, which... You know, it's playing with the idea of the exotic Asian female, right? That kind of titillates you, but, you know, it's her twisted take on it. There's also one called Melons, where she stuffs two large melons where her breasts are, and then she, like, uses a knife, and then she cuts one of the melons and takes a fistful of it in her hand and puts it on a plate that's on top of her head.
0: (laughs) Yes, that was the one that I thought also that could have been the most shocking. Yeah,
1: yeah. But
0: that was her way of talking about a relative's breast cancer. But like the contortionist, it's kind of like Chinese acrobats. And a certain kind of docility and like control of the body required that little Asian girls are perceived to be able to do. Yeah. So she's kind of doing that as a mockery of it while she's like carving out her breasts and serving it as fruit.
1: Yeah, so... We thought this would be a fun way to start our fourth season um, with basically cutting clothes off, but
0: cutting off breasts,
1: making out with your parents, and
0: poop, and poop, and all of these things happening in a museum by Asian women.
1: <laughs> it makes us so proud. Discomfort is something that's relative too, you know. I mean. Really, it's uncomfortable for reasons that we've created, you know. So it really speaks more to the general culture, really, than, you know, to specifically the actions that I'm doing. Uh... <laughs> yeah,
0: so being bad can be so good.
1: <laughs> this is going to be a really weird season.
0: <laughs> when your heart is dancing, your mind is bouncing. That's going to be fun. bounce, 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 bounce. bounce, bounce.
1: Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck A collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community It's produced by me and Brian Our theme song is courtesy of Rinsky Music and Premium Beat Check out our new website at saturdayschoolpodcast.com Where you can find lecture notes and links to all the films we've covered or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And our podcast handle is Wake Up Stat School. Next week, your assignment is to watch Curtis Choi's 1976 documentary, DuPont Guy The Skiz of Grant Avenue. Class dismissed.